This will be uh, the last time we look at this uh, uh, passage of, uh, of Scripture, in fact, the Gospel of Mark, until the new year. We're going to take a couple weeks, uh, of course, uh, the 18th, and then uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day uh, to focus in on this time of the year, the, uh, uh, of course, arrival of our Lord and Savior at Bethlehem. Uh, as he uh, became one of us. And so we'll be looking uh, over those next three uh, messages at Christ and his coming. Uh, But we finish up uh, this year uh, looking at Mark chapter uh, 4, verses uh, 30 through 35. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 35. And over the last couple weeks, we have been exploring Jesus' articulation of parables, his teaching style of telling stories, of giving metaphors as to what the kingdom of God is like. And I want you to uh, cross-reference this uh, passage of Scripture so you're aware of where it's at in one of the other Gospels because Matthew does a great job of articulating even more information on on some of the things that we'll be talking about today and what we did last week as well. And that can be found in Matthew 13. And so those are the corresponding gospel passages. So Matthew addresses this in Matthew 13. And of course, Mark does in his fast and moving um, and right to the point type of style, wastes no time what it takes Matthew to do in 13 chapters, Mark has done in four. And so uh, let's go ahead and look at this passage of Scripture and see what uh, we're going to learn about today. The mustard seed, the smallest of all things, insignificant, and in how it produces great growth. And my prayer is today, through a meager sermon, that there would be a mustard seed type growth in all of our hearts this morning. So if you've turned to Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 35, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read God's word together and then get into the text. Matthew chapter 4, verse 30 through 34. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted... It grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray. Father God, We come before you, and Lord, we come to a very famous parable, the parable of the mustard seed. And as simple as it is, Father, there are things, even after studying this passage, that we still don't know. And so, Lord, I pray by your spirit this morning, you would explain these things as you did to the disciples to us this morning. Lord, I pray especially for us as a people who come in week in and week out and hear the word being taught, that we would not grow cold to it. Father, that the exhortations that we see earlier in the chapter numerous times, he who has an ear, let them hear. Father, I pray that we would be listening this morning, that we would hear what your word has to say to us this morning, because your words bring life. Your words produce faith. Your words are the words that give us the hope in a world of darkness. And Lord, because of that, we are eager to hear this word in this morning. Lord, speak through me as I speak this word. 
so that the people of God may hear it and that we may all do what it says. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. You know you're getting old when the toys and the shows that you watched as a kid make their way back into your children's lives. Transformers was something that came out in 1984, and I know for some of you that makes me really old, and for some of you that makes me really young, but bear with me. But Transformers was something I grew up with. It was something that I watched on TV, and it was something that I played with as a child. And for some of you, you may not know what Transformers is all about. Transformers was a cartoon that turned into toys and now has turned into multi, multi-million dollar films that have recently come out. Speaking of giant robots, both good and bad, who have a special skill or characteristic about them. And what it is, is that they can transform. They can go from things like cars and semi-trucks and airplanes and even radios and guns into these incredibly extravagant and amazing robots with steady hand and an ability to uh, put it all together. They go from a car into the robot that you see. Now, my boys have fallen in love with these things, and again, that makes you feel real old because these are things that I used to play with, and what makes me feel old is I asked my son Joshua yesterday to bring me one of his Transformers, and this was something I could do in my sleep as a child, and when I got his Transformer yesterday, I couldn't make it work for the, to save my life. And that no, you know you're getting old when you can't put together the toys you once were able to. But here's the thing I want you to know about Transformers. The tagline of Transformers was, it's more than meets the eye. Because the thing is, is when you look at that car and from just a, a, a quick glance, it's just a car. But the thing that the creators of Transformers wanted you to know was that there was more than meets the eye. That which was just simply a car could be transformed to become a robot one that could fight the forces of evil, one that could give a child a whole new opportunity of playtime. In fact, you get two toys in one. Now, I bring all that up, not to somehow subliminally tell my children what I'm buying them for Christmas, because they're not getting anything for Christmas, Noah. I know you're out there. But what I'm wanting to share with you is just as Transformers had more than meets the eye. Jesus speaks in a parable this morning about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God has more to it than meets the eye. Because we look at the kingdom of God as believers and even as unbelievers, and we look at the world and we say, where is this kingdom? Where is this God? And what God is saying to us today and what Christ is saying through his words is that there's more to my kingdom than meets the eye. There's more to this kingdom than you can see. There are things that are going on in my kingdom as I establish my throne and my reign. There is more to it than you would ever know. The book of Isaiah says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. We're going to be blown away when God, as he continually reveals his kingdom work to us. But as we look at God's kingdom this morning, as you follow along in your outlines, 
We need to understand a couple things about it. There's a possibility as we look at this kingdom that has more to it than meets the eye. We run the possibility or even the risk of missing the presence of God's kingdom. Missing the presence of God's kingdom. Now before we even get into the mustard seed parable, we have to understand some things about the kingdom of God. And I have to tell you that the kingdom of God is something that should be central to every Christian, should be central to every church, should be central to the very essence of Christianity. And sadly, if I was to ask you this morning, what is the kingdom of God? Many of you would say probably it's the church. And while the church is a main vehicle of God's glory and his grace to a world that needs it, it is not the kingdom of God. Still others would say the kingdom of God is us. The gospel that's been implanted in us as we live out our lives, we are the kingdom of God. No, brothers and sisters, we are the people of God, not his kingdom. And so as we look and as we did last week, the parables of God's kingdom, I want to rewind a little bit and answer the question, what is the kingdom of God? And I'm going to give you just a working definition. The kingdom of God is the manifest presence of the lordship of God or of Christ over all of creation. Meaning, he owns everything. We learned that. that There's not a square inch of all of creation that Jesus Christ doesn't cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. He owns everything. He's over all of us and over all creation, kings and leaders and authority. He's over all of it. Every star in the universe, God has lordship over. Now, how did he get this? It was attained by his death on the cross. When Christ uttered the words, it is finished, the kingdom was won. The kingdom was attained. It was afforded to us, meaning we now can live in the realm of that kingdom because of his resurrection. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We no longer live in a kingdom of darkness. We no longer live in a kingdom that will inevitably end in our demise. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we now are afforded that we are now heirs to the kingdom of God. It has been imparted to us. We live in the realm of that kingdom because the Holy Spirit who lives in us who allows us to abide in him, who allows us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are imparted the truth of this kingdom so that we can live for him and we can live through him and we can live by him. Now this kingdom will be consummated. It will be inaugurated, if you will, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ will come and he will establish his throne here on earth and he will bring under his uh, feet all of his enemies, and he will establish once and for all that he is, whether people like it or not, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the kingdom of God. And as we look at this, we need to understand that when Jesus talks in parables, this is what he's speaking about. That which was prophesied by the prophets, that was articulated throughout the Old Testament, that was spoken as a mystery, Jesus now is revealing. Much of his kingdom was revealed through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
Now, I know that's a bit wordy of a definition, but I want you to look at it within human history. It started with Adam and Eve. Jesus establishes his creation. All is well. Man and God walking together in true fellowship. The reign of God is made manifest throughout the kingdom. And Adam looks and walks and talks with his God. And he sees that God is in control. God is in charge. And he is to serve. But then comes the devil. And the devil comes and he tempts. And man falls. And because of that, fellowship is broken. Bondage is created. As a result of that, we see for a moment it would seem that the devil has won. We ask for this long season, why would God allow such victory? If his is the kingdom, why would God allow such a victory to take place? It is because of that that Paul says now this world is run by the devil who is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. And as a result of that, he's leading people into his kingdom of destruction and pain and eternal damnation. And the question is, why does God stand idly by? If this is his kingdom, if he has the manifest presence of lordship over all that he has, then why isn't he doing something about it? Why hasn't he dealt with the devil? Let me tell you something. There's nothing better. In fact, it's even better than routing an opponent is slowly and surely showing your opponent that he is a loser and that he is lost at every step of the way. And what God is doing is God is saying, I receive more glory. I will receive more praise when I show the devil each and every day that I am God and he is not. But we need to understand that this kingdom that we have bought into, this kingdom that we have placed our faith and trust in is one that is faithful to see the beginning from the end. And this is where the mustard seed comes into it. Because we notice that it's defined in a certain way, and then it's described as having three very important attributes. It's described as a mustard seed. And in that, we see a small beginning. The mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds that a Galilean farmer, that the people of uh, Jerusalem and Judea would have known about. And they would have been well aware of this. In fact, it takes 700 mustard seeds to fit into a gram. That's pretty small. That's pretty tiny. In fact, mustard seeds, if you if really wanted to look at it, it, would have, it was going to be hard to be able to put it on a screen. But literally, it is a, uh, uh, just a piece of sand. A particle of sand is about the side, size of a mustard seed. So we have this parable that the kingdom of God has a small beginning. It began really small. In verse 31, it is like this mustard seed. But notice there is phenomenal blossoming that takes place. This incredible blossoming is seen in verse 32. It says the following. That which is the smallest seed that you plant in the ground, yet when planted, it grows. And it says it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It doesn't remain small. But it grows and it grows and it grows. 
And it goes from that which is the smallest to the most insignificant to the greatest and the most significant of all the plants in the garden that the gardener has. So it starts out small, it blossoms, and it creates for blessing. Look at the end of verse 32. It says that it grows, and when it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Now, just as a side for a moment, we don't know what the birds signify. And I know there was a lot of discussion in the small groups about that. Most of the commentaries that I uh, work through and, and uh, hold uh, as trustworthy all seem to say that this is speaking of blessing. That as the birds come, uh, they are able to be nurtured and be shaded by uh, the care of it. But other commentaries that I've read spoke of it speaking of us as Gentiles being the birds that are grafted into the flock of God, the people of God. Still others believe that it may be those that are um, a part of uh, the evil uh, work of the devil that come and are a part of it. And while those are all uh, seemingly uh, speculative, even the one that I ascribe to, it seems best that it's speaking of a time of blessing. What is going to happen is this which is small will become large and it will become a blessing to those around it. What do we do with that? I want to explore this mustard seed for a moment. I want you to write that this is seen somewhere in your outline, right? This is seen, first of all, in the life of Christ. You want to understand the mustard seed? Let's look at the life of Christ. Jesus, he grew up in a despised province of Nazareth. He did not appear until he was 30 years of age on the public scene. He taught for two, maybe three years in neighboring villages, occasionally going to Jerusalem. He made a few converts, chiefly amongst the poor and the unlearned. And then falling to the hands of his enemies, he died the shameful death on the cross. And as a result of that, something so small and seeming insignificant was the commencement of the universal kingdom of God. That this man, who didn't travel more than maybe 40 miles from his hometown, would become the greatest human being to ever live. Even if you don't believe that Jesus is God, or the savior of the world, you have to buy into the idea of the mustard seed parable when looking at the life of Christ because something so small 2,000 years ago has become something so big that this man, this teacher, the one we believe to be the second person of the Trinity who started out in a manger in Bethlehem with pauper parents would become that which we worship every day. Something small with incredible blossoming brings great blessing. Let's rewind for a moment and let's look at the Old Testament and we see it in God's chosen people. Remember, in Genesis, God calls a man named Abram and he calls him from what is now modern day northern Iraq and he speaks to Abram and he says, I want you to go to a new place. I have a land for you. And out of you, I'm going to create a great nation that the stars in the heavens will not be able 
to stand next to the amount of offspring that you will have. Out of you will become something great. And this man who goes on this incredible pilgrimage, who trusts God, who is called a friend of God, at the ripe old age of nearly 100, him and his wife would have a son, Isaac. And from that offspring would be the greatest assembly of people that would come. And Jesus speaks of his people, Israel, and he says, though you were not great, in fact, you were the smallest of all, I made you great. That which was small and insignificant, God made great. And you know what God told the people of Israel? He said, I have blessed you to do what? To be a blessing. When God grows a mustard seed in the life of Israel, he doesn't say just enjoy it. He says, now I want you to be a blessing to others. Just as Christ came and was nothing, he was a blessing to those who he came in contact with. Now let's go to one more and let's see it in the life of the church. This mustard seed. With just a couple dozen followers scared and bewildered in Jerusalem, in an upper room waiting on a promise of the Spirit of the Lord coming, 120 disciples would grow to 3,000 in a matter of days. Acts 4, 4 says it would soon grow to 5,000. In Acts 6, 7, it says that the Jerusalem disciples continued to multiply. It would then go on through Jerusalem and into Judea and into Galilee and into Samaria, Acts 9.31 tells us. And years later, we are told in Acts 21.20 that the church would have myriads of believers just in Jerusalem alone. And now, 2,000 years of history. And now, just sitting in this local church, hundreds of people come to proclaim the same gospel, to hear the same teaching, to worship the same king, that which started in an upper room in Jerusalem, we are now the byproduct of the mustard seed that God started in his church. And our job and our calling is to be a blessing to all those we can come into contact with. You see, we need to understand this kingdom. This kingdom is moving and the thing that we need to understand is my second point this morning. And that is that because of this kingdom work and how God is doing this work, it is easy for us to misunderstand the power of it. We see how God is working. We've seen how he worked in, the, in his son. We've seen how he worked within the life of his chosen people Israel. And we've seen how it's grown and the exponential growth that we've seen in the life of the church. But what enables that? What power, what strength does it uh, work off of to be able to get it? Because we can look at this world and we can begin to wonder. In fact, numerous texts in our scriptures, and especially the New Testament, speak of people who will scoff about this kingdom. I want you to turn for a moment to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Just for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3.
as you're turning there, I may be wrong in that passage. Um, give me a second. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Thank you. 2 Peter chapter 3. That's always the fear of a preacher when he types the wrong passage. 2 Peter chapter 3. A couple more pages over. Listen to what takes place. First of all, Peter says, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? In essence, what Peter's saying is people are going to wonder, where is this kingdom? It's been 2,000 years. And we've seen a history of Christians living and dying, living and dying, giving up all that the world has to offer. They've given it up. And the reason they've given it up is because of this kingdom that God has inaugurated for his people. And the unbeliever will sit there and say, where is this kingdom? They'll say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our forefathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With, a, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That kingdom is going to come. And it's going to come, it says later in that text, like a thief. And what we need to understand is as we look at this kingdom, we have to understand, write this in your outlines, that the kingdom of God is hidden. It is a hidden reality. We have to understand that God is growing his kingdom. The text tells us uh, in uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 28, it says the following. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. What we need to understand is that the kingdom of God is active right now. It's going forth today. We see that kingdom is hidden because we don't see what the scriptures tell us that all of the trees and all of creation is groaning and it's awaiting of the kingdom and the redemption and restoration of it. We don't see that kingdom at work because I am my thoughts are brought to Nicodemus. That speaks of the, the kingdom work that the spirit does is like the wind. We can't see the wind. We can only see its effect. And the kingdom is very similar. We can't see the kingdom of God. I can't point to you and say at this microphone stand, this is the kingdom of God. But what I can tell you is, is that when I see lives changed, and I see God glorified, and I see the world glorifying and honoring God, and I see people standing and proclaiming at the top of their lungs that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, I can point to that and I can say, there is the kingdom. It's hidden. Notice that there's a second thing that we must see with this, and that it's seen in the change of hearts. 
Notice in verse 28 of chapter 4. It says, all by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk and then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he'll put a sickle to it and the harvest will come. The way that we see the kingdom is seen in the lives that are changed. And for some of you, a mustard seed was planted in your life as a young child. As you grew under a, a uh, oversight of a godly mother and father, that little mustard seed was planted, whether in a Sunday school class or in Awana or in a parent praying over you at bedtime, that mustard seed was planted and now you have grown and, and gone from the things of a child where you thought like a child and you looked at the world through the eyes of a child, you have grown. And I look and I can remember with great admiration looking at my father and saying, I want to be like him. I want to walk with Jesus like he does. And that mustard seed has grown that now my desire isn't as much just to live like my dad is because I hope that I'm doing that. But now that my own children will look at me and say, I want to be like dad. I want to live like him. And my prayer is as I plant that mustard seed in my children's lives, that they will grow. Still others of you receive that seed later in life. And maybe that change wasn't something that gradually took place. But in the farmer's, the farmer, it says, is going about his business. God is doing a work. It grows by itself. And some of you grew, uh, that seed grew overnight. Like the apostle Paul as Saul, who saw the risen Lord, who bowed down. He was a changed man. And some of you, because of the sovereignty of God over your life, said, I'm going to change you today. And you'll never be the same. You're a new creation. The old is gone. Here's the thing that we need to understand. We see the kingdom of God in our lives as we fellowship with one another. As we see that mustard seed growing in the life of our children, in the life of the people in our small group, in the life of the people that we worship and serve with, that we say, there's the kingdom of God. I've watched John and his life has changed and I see the glory of almighty God on his life. We won't see the kingdom very much in our own lives, but we will see it in the lives of others. This kingdom is seen through changed hearts. Finally, this is seen and is revealed at the harvest. The mustard seed, which is quiet, it's just doing its work, it's just growing. Nobody's checking in on it each and every day. Even the farmer's going about his business. That seed is growing. And as it's growing, when will we see the fullness of its growth? It's seen at harvest. It is seen when it grows ripe and it grows to be the largest of all the plants in the garden. Jesus tells us that his kingdom will be like that as well. I want you to turn for a moment to the book of Revelation, very quickly. Book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I want you to see what is articulated about this kingdom. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. Here we have the scroll of the Lamb being open, and we see a heavenly image. And I want you to hear these words. In fact, as you turn there, it's good that you turn there so you can see that I'm not making this up, but I want you to close your eyes for a moment. 
And I will do the best job of reading this as I think as close to the text as possible with the effect that is going on there. It says that there is a great assembly of living creatures and 24 elders falling before the Lamb in heaven. Each one has a harp and they're holding golden bowls full of incense. And here's the prayers of the saints. And they sang a song. Listen to these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. John says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands, and they all, the thousands, the myriad of angels, encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and with one loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all the God's people said, Amen. The day that we will see this kingdom will be when God, once and for all, deals with Satan, deals with sin, and every man, woman, and child, every creature above the earth, on the earth, and below the earth will bow the knee to Jesus and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And it is on that day, my friends, that we will say, there is the kingdom there is what we have been waiting for, what our eyes have not seen, what our ears cannot think or hear that God has planned for his people. The final thing that I want us to look at is as we look at this kingdom, we have to ask the question, how do we minister in it? My final point is ministering in the light of God's promise. Verse 33 and 34 reminds us that God would use parables to teach his disciples. And he would do this often, and he would speak, and he would tell his disciples the meaning of these parables. And likewise, we're being spoken, to these, spoken by these parables as well. And in these parables, we find precious and great promises. And in each of these promises, we're reminded of some important truths. Now, here's the problem. When we look at our world... We grow weary and stagnant in our pursuit of this kingdom. We look and we see the debauchery all around us. We struggle with the ongoing battle with sin. And all the while we see the sinners advancing and the people of God downtrodden. There are times in my life that I feel like the prophet Habakkuk. How long, God? How long are you going to let the sinners uh, rejoice and the people of God struggle with pain and suffering? How long, God, will you allow injustice to prevail? How long? Where are you, God? How can you remain silent? How can you allow violence to persist? When are you going to act? When are you going to do something? And it is right there, as I'm speaking at the top of my lungs, questioning the plans of God, that God reminds me that his kingdom is like a mustard seed. And he says, hey, 
I'm at work. I'm doing something. Tim, open your eyes. Tim, if you have ears, let you hear what I'm saying so you can see what I'm doing. I planted a seed, and that seed is producing fruit. Take solace. I've claimed the victory. Tim, stop walking around with a loser limp. You are a son of the Most High God. You think you're a minority. You're the champion. You're the winner. And the problem is we as Christians, we walk into our workplaces and, and, and we don't want to tell anybody about Jesus because they'll laugh at us. We don't want to tell people what we do at church because they'll think we're weird. We think that we're the only people in the neighborhood that love Jesus and walk with him. And even if you are, let me tell you this, you are the champion because you're a part of the kingdom. The best way to illustrate this is what will happen in about a year. We will elect a president. And in that election, something will take place, and that election will take place uh, that first, uh, if I got it right, I don't want to have an oops moment, but uh, the first uh, Tuesday of the month of November. And that night, hopefully, we will be able to hear from our media outlets that so-and-so has been elected president. He has won. He is the victor. Or she, we've got a she in there. I've got to be careful about that. They're the victor. But what happens does that person then jump into the White House? Does that person uh, become the president right then and there? No. There is a period of transition. And that tr transition will go on for a couple months until January 20th when an inauguration will take place where there will be pomp and circumstance and there will be all kinds of fanfare and all kinds of parade and balls and all of that where the eyes of the nation will go to Pennsylvania Avenue when the president establishes himself once and for all as the leader of our country. The kingdom of God is like that. And brothers and sisters, election day took place on a cross 2,000 years ago. And he said, it is finished. And he says, I am victorious. And as he came out from that grave, he says, you don't have to worry about death anymore. And what we have been living in in the last 2,000 years is not the crumbling of a kingdom, but the transition. We are in the season between election day and inauguration day. But let me tell you something, there's a day coming and that day is gonna come in a twinkling of an eye where Jesus once and for all will banish Satan and will banish sin and will wipe away every tear and he will establish us and he will make us the heirs of Christ that he has called us and he has purchased in us. And it's on that day that we will see the kingdom. And so as a result of that, don't walk around Christian with your head down. Don't walk around wondering what impact you can have. God has put a mustard seed in your life. Now live like it. Be the blossom that God has called you to be and allow you to be the blessing. And so that gives me three things I wanna quickly break with you. And that is one, because of this promise, because God is the victor, because we are more than conquerors in Christ, then go and boldly tell others about him. Why do we sit? Why do we wait? Why do we wonder? Go tell them about Jesus. We are the victors. Could you see an attack ad the day after the election day? How would you feel if someone, if you were elected president and someone came out with an attack ad? Who cares? I'm in. You're not. Nana, a boo-boo. 
And some of us walk around and, oh, they make fun of me. And they speak badly about my Jesus. And, and, and they're taking away our rights. And, and we can't say Christmas anymore. And we can't. And I'm telling you, it's pathetic. Jesus is on his throne. Do you think he knows this? So let's stand up and let's boldly tell people we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God and let God figure out the results. Number two, it means we need to break away from sin. You want to live in this kingdom? Then start living according to the principles of this kingdom. And I can assure you, while they are vast, one thing that we don't see is that sin is a part of it. And some of us aren't experiencing the kingdom of God in our life. We're not seeing the growth of that mustard seed because it's being choked out by the things of this world. It's being choked out by the desires of the flesh. It is being choked out by our schedules that make things more important than God. And let me tell you something, you wanna see this kingdom grow in your life? You wanna see this kingdom be fulfilled in your neighborhood and in your workplace, in your school? Then stop saying uh, yes to the things of this world and start saying yes to the things of God. Number three, build God's kingdom today. Now you say, Tim, I thought we can't do it. It's God's work. It is. And so scripture tells us what we can do. Write these down. Number one, pray for God's kingdom. Pray for God's kingdom. You say, Tim, where is that? Our Father, who art in, he who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom, what? Come. You get on your knees and you say, Lord, I want your kingdom to come into my family. I want your kingdom to come in my school. I want your kingdom to come in my workplace. Lord, I want you to be Lord of all. And I'm going to pray to that end. And I'm going to get on my knees until that is accomplished. Number two, pursue the kingdom. Where in the world do I find that? Seek first the what? The kingdom of God and its righteousness. And when we pursue the kingdom, the promise is, and all these things will be added unto you. You don't have to worry about anything else in this world. You worry about the kingdom, and God says, I'll take care of the rest. Pursue it. And finally, promote missions to speed its coming. You say, Tim, what are you talking about? Let me read one more passage, and then I'm done. Matthew 24, 14 says this. It says, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Why do we send missionaries? Why are we reaching orphans in Africa? It isn't so we can put a thing on our chest that says we're a great people. But the reason why is that we are the church, the church of the kingdom of God, and that the gospel is all about the kingdom. It's all about our reign, or about God's reign, the triumph of our king over sin and death. And our desire is to spread that good news, the good news of the kingdom, that God reigns over all, and that the world may know that truth and be saved. That they would come to know Jesus love and admire him, honor and trust him, and follow him and make them their Lord and Savior. If you've been born into this kingdom and you have the spirit living inside of you, then you have a job to do. And you have a job amidst the fighting of two kingdoms right now 
the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And the choice you have to make this morning is what kingdom are you going to be a part of?